This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Hello. Tis the season for ridiculous bobble hats, gloves hastily bought in a service station and contemplating the prospect within weeks of putting on those rather tight thermals that do keep you warm but get rather clammy by mid-morning and distinctly whiffy by the evening. And that is just an insight into my winter election campaign wardrobe. But never mind that it'll be dark and it'll be wet. A general election, whether you want one or not, is a carnival of democracy where the debate is in your street and the future is in your hands. This weekend, we are the guests of the University of Liverpool and on our panel, two daughters of this region. Gillian Keegan grew up in Highton in Knowlesley and studied at Liverpool John Moores University. After 25 years in business, she became the Conservative MP for Chichester in West Sussex in 2017 and is now the Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock. Gillian is the oldest player in the women's parliamentary football team. Uh, Many recent victories? Uh, No, actually no victories so far. (laughs) Zero ever? We haven't been playing that long, but no. We've been very narrowly beaten on a number of occasions. (laughs) Nicola Horlick grew up in Puddington on the Wirral Peninsula. She worked as a fund manager in the City of London for many years, but having leafleted for her dad, a Liberal candidate in these parts in the 1970s, she is now a Liberal Democrat candidate herself at next month's general election in Chelsea and Fulham in London. Nicola, does it feel like you're coming home when you return to Liverpool? Yes, it really does. And we were saying over dinner... Oh, sorry, dinner. Um, we were saying how friendly people are here compared to the South. And, you know, it really is just so nice that everybody talks to each other. And in London, people are just so unfriendly. Buttering up the audience, eh, Emily? <laughs> We're two minutes in. <laughs> Transparent, but it worked. Uh, John Healy has been an MP in South Yorkshire for 22 years. He represents Wentworth and Dern, having previously worked for charities and for the Trades Union Congress. He served in government when Labour were in power in a variety of ministerial roles. He's now the Shadow Housing Secretary. And John, I read that you keep a white hard hat in your office. What's all that about? Uh, That's a a relic from the campaign trail in 2010 when I was Labour's last housing minister before we lost in uh, that election in, in May. And uh, just to say to the audience, just as friendly across the Pennines in South Yorkshire. (laughs) That's the difference between the North and the South for you. Now, I like to think that I can put a shift in, but I am a slumbering sloth compared to Ian Dale. Ian is a presenter with LBC and he is a political commentator. He finished on the radio at 10 o'clock last night and he was on my telly at half six this morning as I was eating my Rice Krispies. (laughs) He's writing a book about the state of our political debate called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? And he's been keeping readers of his newsletter regularly updated on how many words he's written. Uh, What are we up to, Ian, and what do you have to get to? Well, I was actually writing some on the train coming up here, which, as it was delayed, I wrote more than I uh, thought I would. So I've written 40,000 so far, 70,000, so we're nearly there. And how many of those 40,000 do you think make the cut in the end? About half. Right. (laughs) Ian, thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, your Any Questions panel. And our first question this weekend comes from Helen Orton. Hi, Helen. Hello, good evening. My question is, does the panel think that Donald from Washington 
was right to interfere in the December election in the way that he did on the LBC radio phone-in. Yeah, this is a reference to President Trump speaking to the Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage on LBC uh, earlier in the week. Ian Dale, given that Nigel Farage is your warm-up man on the radio, I think we'll come to you first on this one. I like to refer to him as my fluffer. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up, or maybe not. Um, there, no, he wasn't is the simple answer. I don't, look, when Barack Obama interfered in the European referendum, I was the first to criticise that. So I can hardly sit here now and say Donald Trump was right to diss Jeremy Corbyn in the way that he did yesterday. Funnily enough, though, I think as a result of that interview, probably, Jeremy Corbyn probably came out of it uh, more, more happy than people in Downing Street. Downing Street were not very happy with Donald Trump at all at the end of that interview yesterday. But it's... Donald Trump being Donald Trump. I mean, he won't have even thought about the fact that he's a, a foreign leader commenting on a, a, a foreign election. He was just... I was going to say he was answering a question. It wasn't actually a question that Nigel Farage even asked. He just volunteered the information in the way that he does. But if you listen to the whole half an hour, he was actually much more lucid than you sort of sometimes see him on platforms. I mean, if you saw that press conference that he did after um, al-Baghdadi was killed, I mean, that was just... I mean, it was just awful to watch. Um, and he, he will only be interviewed by people that he knows and likes. He, he wouldn't be interviewed by an aggressive interviewer. But sometimes, as you know, Chris, in interviews, you don't have to be aggressive to get news lines. And whatever people think about the fact that it was Nigel Farage conducting the interview, he got six cracking news lines out of that interview. Gillian Keegan. Uh, well, I think it probably was good for Nigel Farage, um, and certainly that's what it was intended to do. Uh, but clearly he should not be interfering in our election. Um, I don't quite know what impact he will have, because I think everything he says, we tend to do exactly the opposite. Um, he doesn't, he's not somebody that we warm to, he's not somebody we listen to, he's not somebody generally that lots of people admire. Um, but certainly he... Um, you know, he, he, he does this all the time, though. I don't know why we're surprised. He does it on Twitter all the time. He does it... Uh, it's unusual to do it on a radio show. I think it's the first... I don't know whether he's done that in the US, but it's the first time I've heard him on the radio. Um, and he clearly hasn't read the deal either, because what he was saying about the deal... Um, I mean, I have read the deal in great detail. was completely wrong. So, um, no, it was inappropriate, and I think uh, also probably misleading and insulting to some of our politicians... And, you know, we're in the middle... Well, we're about to start a general election. What does it say, though, about the Brexit deal if the President of the United States does conclude that it might not be what's needed to be able to do a trade deal with his country? I don't think he's read it. And I'm not 100% sure he, he's in the detail. I think that's what many people would say about him anyway, but I don't know if he's really in the detail. Um, you know, this does... And, and actually, you know, the reason Boris went um, to, to, to get another trade deal, to, to renegotiate with the European Union, was to enable it to, you know, to be more, more easy to, to do free trade deals with the US and other countries. And that's what you know, he spent the last few months doing. So that was the entire objective of that deal, um, as well as um, not having a backstop, which we stayed in for a long time. John Healy, is it, is it old-fashioned for us to expect that foreign leaders will keep their noses out of, uh, out of, of our elections? Why shouldn't they be able to comment? No, it's not. Um, and it's right that we should expect that. Um, Trump's taking too close an interest in our election for my liking and in our NHS. And I think, as Ian Dale has just said, it may well... It may well... It may well back... 
may well backfire on both um, in, in, in time. I mean, he said, he said before about our NHS he wouldn't touch it, um, but he said the opposite in June uh, to what he said in this interview, and you've got to ask if the trade deal with the US is not going to include the NHS, why have there been six separate meetings between US and UK trade if, officials where medicines pricing has been discussed. And I think in the end, look, you can't trust Trump and actually you can't trust Johnson to stick to their word. And my worry from Trump's interview and from the way that um, Boris Johnson has tackled the whole question of his Brexit deal is if he wins the election uh, and gets his bad deal through this country then, he's going to be desperate to do a trade deal, any deal with the US, and that's going to be bad bad in the future for our NHS. Why, why do we... Why do you worry about that, John? Surely you're confident of winning the election. Certainly confident in winning the election, but part of the winning the election is drawing attention to the risk that this poses to the NHS. And it's not just a Trump deal um, at post-election if Boris Johnson wins. It builds on the legislation in 2015 that the Liberal Democrats and Tories passed, the NHS Act, which requires our NHS services since then to be put out to competition. Privatisations doubled that okay. uh, since then. And what a trade deal normally does is it knocks in... of the NHS increased in the Blair government more than it has done over the last 10 years. Yeah, the, the, it's complete scaremongering. The fastest and rate of privatisation has been since 2010. It's locked in by 2012. And if you have a trade deal on top of that, it'll put rocket boosters okay. under the NHS privatisation and opening it up to US corporations. OK, we're meandering some distance Somewhere, from Helen's yeah. uh, question, and then we will return to some of these themes a, a little later. Nicola Horlick, your reflections on, on Helen's question. Well, I do think it's interfering. I also think it's absolutely extraordinary that the President of the United States should do a phone-in with Nigel Farage on LBC. Great for LBC, commercially a great success I'm sure but I have to say I think it's a very strange thing to have happened and also I do very... Radio presenter interviews politician what's strange about that? Well he's the President of the United States and it is interfering in an election period okay technically the election hasn't started but it seems to me pretty strange that this happened and I completely agree with what John said about the NHS, there is a real fear that we are going to be bounced in some terrible trade deal and that we will end up having privatisation by the back door of the NHS, and that is a great concern. I thought one of the interesting things, though, about the interview was when Trump was trying to encourage Farage and Johnson to get together and have some sort of pact. And it's going to be very interesting over the next few days to see if that happens. My guess is it won't. Because let's remember, the reason that David Cameron had the referendum in the first place was he was trying to stamp on Farage and the Brexit party. That was the whole idea. So I think it's somewhat unlikely, but it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Well, on that very, very theme, let's take our, our next question, please. Hi, I'm Stephen Waller-Flynn, and I'd like to know if Boris was right to have rejected becoming part of a Leave alliance. I think this is one for you, Gillian Keegan. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm delighted that he has, because... Um, I, I believe that the Conservative Party is the only party now that can deliver Brexit. There is only one party who has... And you, you may not want Brexit to have, happen. You know, I, I, I voted to remain. I campaigned to remain. But ultimately, I am a Democrat. And we are one of the oldest and most respected democracies in the world still. 
And we ought not to ignore that. At our peril, I think we would. We're one of the oldest, respected, most respected democracies in the world. And what we would say if we didn't deliver Brexit is your vote did not count. And I personally am not willing to do that. I'm very much against no deal. I'm very much against a second referendum. I think they're both the wrong outcomes. They're the, both the wrong outcomes. So what we need, what we need is a deal. Now, Boris has a deal. Nigel Farage has now said he doesn't want that deal, he doesn't like that deal. So there's no reason to do any, anything. The Brexit party with Nigel Farage, I've felt this for, for a while, I think actually it's a vehicle for him and it's a vehicle for his publicity. I'm not sure how much he really cares about the cause well, anymore because well, he's on. always he, moving the goalposts of what well, actually Brexit is. Well, he would argue, and he has argued for some time, that he thinks a, a true vision of a true Brexit is leaving without a... An overarching he did not argue that in the referendum. But he's been arguing it consistently in recent months, hasn't he? But what about the thought that says, you know, you, you've, made the argument, you've made the argument that, you know, Brexit needs to be delivered and that, and that the Conservatives have a, have a plan and have a deal. What about the argument that says, if there isn't some sort of Leave alliance, there is a split amongst Leave voters in the general election, and that could... That could allow the exact opposite of what you want to happen to happen. In well, other words, a, a, gov- a government that wants another referendum or whatever. Well, that is a risk. However, it's a big risk, isn't it? Um, I don't know if it's a big risk. I think you know, if you look at some of the polling now, they they basically said that they thought you know the Leave voters were supportive of Boris's deal. Many people are supportive of Boris's deal. So you know, lots of businesses are supportive. The NFU is supportive. The Federation of Small Business, the CBI. Many people are supportive of this deal. So. Actually, um, I think, you know, all Nigel Farage, what you have to remember, is completely unaccountable for anything that he says. When he says no deal, if no deal was a complete disaster, who's accountable for that? Not Nigel Farage, the government of the country. And so it's very, very easy when somebody has none of the accountability for them to continually move the goalpost to some utopia that was never discussed in the referendum at all and say, this is where we all okay. need to go off. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a stupid position and it's also an irresponsible position and we should never be a party that goes into, into any kind of alliance with the Brexit party. We will have the Brexit party on any questions uh, next week when we come from uh, Falkirk. Nicola Horlick. Well, let's remember that the Brexit Party actually won the European elections. So it seems to me that the Brexit Party should stand in these elections. They should have candidates in every single constituency because that seemingly is what people want if they voted for them, and that's part of democracy. So I think it would be wrong for there to be some sort of leave alliance. In terms of whether that then splits the vote, well, it probably will. And the question then will be, who will suffer from that? And it may well be, a lot of analysis seems to show that Labour actually will suffer more probably than the Tories. So maybe the Tories need to think carefully about all of this and think about the impact. But I think probably what they're thinking is it's probably going to hurt Labour more than it's going to hurt them. What about the idea of a Remain alliance on on your side of the argument amongst parties that are broadly in favour of either a softer Brexit or no Brexit at all? Is that something you would advocate, the Liberal Democrats standing down in some places, possibly the Greens or Plaid or whoever it might be standing down elsewhere? Well, I think there are one or two conversations going on in special cases, you know, so maybe in Brighton, where there's a Green MP, for example, and in some of the Welsh constituencies, that might happen. But it's not really the same, is it, as the Conservatives and the Brexit Party, which is a much bigger issue. John Healy. 
I think people won't be fooled. Um, they could have smelt a stitch up if the deal had been done in that way. And in many ways, Nigel Farage made um, Boris Johnson an offer he couldn't accept um, because it would have made Boris Johnson look like he would uh, say anything to anybody if he'd been willing to drop his deal in order to do that. I mean, I think what, whichever way you voted on Brexit, it's a mess. And we simply can't continue with the chaos that we've had for the last three years. Um, the last three years where the Conservatives called the referendum and have failed, in my view, in their duty as the government then to negotiate a deal that could convince Parliament and the public to back it. And we now need a way through this mess. And the way to, through this mess is we need a better deal that protects jobs and that protects the unity and integrity of the United Kingdom. And we need to put that to the people for their final say-so. That's the route out of this mess. That's the way to bring the country together again. And that's what Labour would do in government after the election. Ian Dale, I'll come to you in a second. Just a couple of tweets from people uh, listening. Uh, love underscore Brexit tweets. Um, little insight into what might be to follow. The gloomsters and the doomsters will have to reevaluate how they see Boris because he just keeps hitting them for six, says love underscore Brexit. And the last person two... I wonder who the last person one is. Anyway, the last person two, Farage gave Johnson an offer he couldn't possibly accept. Ian Dale. Um, just on John's point, I'd love to know how another referendum would bring the country together. It would be incredibly divisive. But on the substance of the point, um, I think Nigel Farage's big difficulty now is that he knows, according to a massive Comrades poll that came out last week, was it the week before, showed that 67% of Brexit Party voters support Boris Johnson's deal. Now, that's a, that's a big dilemma for him. So I'm not surprised at what he did today. But as John said, he offered Boris Johnson a deal that he knew that he couldn't accept. And he has literally rejected it within the last hour and a half, I think. Um, there's been a big debate within the Brexit party about whether they should just stand in sort of 20 Labour leave seats, some in, in this region. Um, that Nigel Farage has obviously won that debate because that is not going to happen now. I suspect they will still put most of their financial resources in, into those seats, and it may well deliver a few seats in the in the northwest and the northeast for the Conservatives because the vote will be split. We saw that happen in the '83 and '87 general elections when the SDP Liberal Alliance and, and Labour effectively had a split opposition vote. So I'm not sure what the result of this election is going to be, but it, but all I do know is that will it, it will in part be because of the size of the Brexit party vote and, and where, where those votes go. And it could be that the Tories, they're 16% ahead in the polls at the moment, but I don't detect any panic among Labour uh, for that. I mean, normally you would think, well, they would be thinking, well, we're going to definitely lose now. But those, that Tory lead could pile up in safe Tory seats. So you could find 30 or 40,000 majorities where they don't really need them, but they don't necessarily get the votes where they do need them, which will partly be in the southwest, which has traditionally been a, a Eurosceptic area. But up until um, 2015, it was a very Lib Dem area, and that's where the Lib Dems, if they don't win in the southwest, they're not going to have a good election. Given the nature of your analysis, Ian, is this, is this the first big moment of this campaign, what, what Nigel Farage has said? Yes, I think it is. It is a big moment. Um, 
but it, it is impossible to predict. And you, you will find a lot of political commentators like me pontificating over the course of the next few weeks about what the result will be. Um, I did that in the last election. I predicted a, a Tory majority of 100. So don't listen to a word I say, basically. <laughs> Let's return to Stephen, our, our questioner. Stephen, your reflections, are, I guess your, the answer to your own question. Well, um, I'm clear that Boris promised this country that he would deliver on Brexit. And I think he needs to think very carefully before he closes off any options to do that. Um, this election, in my opinion, is primarily about Brexit. And before it even starts, he's ruled out probably the only safe way of delivering it. Can I just come back no. very briefly on that? Because very I think the, one, one other point to make is that um, the result of this election will also partially depend on how many of you blame Boris Johnson personally for the fact that we didn't come out on the 31st of October and how many of you, because of that, then decide to give your vote to Nigel Farage. And it's impossible to predict that at the moment. Or indeed, how many of you see this as a much bigger question? It's a general election. We're picking a government for the next five years that's got a job to do that's more than Brexit. And that's one of the big failings of the last three years. A government... One of the big failings of the last government over the last three years, they've been incapable of dealing with anything, as we've seen failings on all fronts, just on, not just on the ability to deliver for Brexit. And that's from real wages falling, okay. to the housing crisis, the, the crisis in the NHS and policing on our streets. This is a big moment for this country, but it's a choice for the next five years, not just the Brexit deal that we need to get through Hang on a second, here. Let's, let's bring in Gillian Keegan as we, as we expand this conversation. So chip, <laughs> nipping around the table for a second time. Uh, Gillian Keegan, just re responding to John Healy. Well, I mean, I think it is obviously got to be more, about more than Brexit because we do... I mean, it would be nice to have a government for five years. I mean, obviously, we've had two elections now um, in, in uh, every two years, um, and that's largely been driven by Brexit. But it is fundamental that you do choose a government above and beyond Brexit, of course. And that government obviously needs to have a strong... I mean, you know, this is Liverpool. I, I'm from Liverpool. I know that Conservatives are not necessarily that popular here. Uh, although there are more... There are more conser I have to say, there are more Conservative uh, MPs who are Scousers than there are Labour MPs, actually, from the place, not representing. Um, but, um, you know, so I know, I know it, is, it, it is a tough sell in this area, but the reality is you do have to choose a government that you can trust with the economy. And this is what... I hope we do get onto this, Chris, because mm. the, this, the programme that Labour has set out is unbelievable in terms of risk, I believe. In fact, it would make a no-deal Brexit look like a walk in the park. It is that risky for our economy. OK, well, I think you've both Labour and Conservatives outrated your perspectives on the, on the, on the manifestos to come. Um, Nicola Horlick. Yeah, well, I think the problem is that a general election isn't really the right way to decide the Brexit question because, of course, a general election should be about everything else as well. So why are you but standing? Un unfortunately, <laughs> we couldn't get a referendum. I think there have been 17 votes in the House of Commons and we never actually managed to well, get to the point you, where we could have a Why are you standing in a referendum? contest that you don't think should be happening? <laughs> well, given that it is happening and given that I want to stop Brexit... I was one of those people. I was one of those people who was sitting in front of the television and hearing politicians every single day saying people just want to get it done. Well, that's not actually true. Which there are large do. numbers of people who don't want to get it done. They actually just want to stop it, okay. and they want 
And, you know, if we want our economy to recover, because it is slowing down pretty rapidly now, stopping it is the best way to reignite growth and to okay. have future How can prosperity. you call yourself a Liberal or a Democrat when you, when you say things like that, where you want to stop something that the majority of the country voted for? <laughs> Well, we'll see you We're about to have a democratic vote. OK. Tell you what. I am going to draw a discreet veil over Brexit conversation. Uh, if you're inclined to shout out in the audience, by the way, our, our listener at home or in the car can't quite hear you, but I urge you to pick up the phone to any answers tomorrow lunchtime or Saturday lunchtime after the Saturday edition uh, of uh, any questions. And Etran is in the chair for 45 minutes, 03700. 100 0300 uh, Lines open at 12.30. Oh, by the way, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we are in Falkirk next week, the Falkirk Wheel, and tickets are still available via the Scottish Canals website. <laughs> so if you punch Scottish Canals into your favourite search engine, you can, come <laughs> along, you can come along to any questions in Scotland where the Brexit Party, who have featured in tonight's conversation, uh, will uh, appear. The Scottish Canals Trust, I'm being told, I don't want to send you in the direction of uh, any other canal websites with a, with a tartan hint. <laughs> the Scottish Canals Trust, uh, yeah, definitely that. Uh, is, that's where we'll be uh, in a week's time. Let's take another question from uh, Neil Pye. Hi, Neil. Hi, uh, good evening. Um, my question to the panel is, has British politics become too dangerous for women to participate in and engage with? Start with Liberal Democrat candidate Nicola Horlick because you're venturing into politics at just the yeah. time when, when some people are making the argument that they, they want to venture out of it. Yeah, I seem to be swimming against the tide. And it is terrible, the abuse that women politicians get. And I think one of the problems, it, you know, Twitter seems to be the main playground for this. And it seems to me that it should, it's wrong for people to be able to hurl abuse and be anonymous. So I think we should actually legislate and say people have to be identifiable. Because if people are making death threats against female politicians, that clearly is absolutely wrong. And although a lot of it is just, you know, people making threat, empty threats... There have been terrible instances we know in the past, and particularly the death of Joe Cox. And I think it has to be taken seriously. We cannot ignore this. And in fact, there was this terrible story a few days ago about Gina Miller, where somebody apparently has set up a crowdfunding site to hire somebody to kill Gina Miller. I mean, this is just not Britain, the Britain that I know and love. And I think this also comes back, unfortunately, yet again, to the whole Brexit situation and the divisions that we have now in our society and even within families. And the vitriol and nastiness that has developed is something that we've somehow got to get rid of. And it's really difficult to know how to do that. But coming back to the idea of, you know, me standing when everybody else seems to be leaving, I'm not going to be cowed by these people it's wrong in a democracy for people to feel that they can't stand up and say what they think for fear that someone might harm them or their family. And I simply will not allow that to happen, and I hope that other women will follow my example. Let's get a perspective from a Conservative MP, Gillian Keegan. 
Um, well, it's clear that uh, Brexit has divided the country, it's divided families, it's divided friendships. I've had people come into my surgery talk about their uh, physical fighting in their families. Um, and, you know, it's clearly had a, a massive impact on, par- on Parliament and on political parties. Um, and, and we do need to remember as a country that... Before this election in June 2016, the vast majority of us woke up in the morning and we did not think about Europe. It was not the number one thought in our minds. It wasn't what we worried about. It wasn't what concerned us. And suddenly, we've all gone slightly mad with Brexit. And it's like an earworm. It's kind of got into everybody's heads. And I don't know whether it's a proxy for something else or whether it's just we, you know, it's, it's got two tribes and it's got all of the, you know, the West Side story. It's got all of the characteristics that normally make for a, for a good argument. Um, but the impact that has had on politicians, uh, certainly those who are more high profile, I haven't had a lot of abuse personally, but more high profile politicians have had an unbelievable amount of abuse. We've all had our home. Uh, re-secured. Um, if you have a young family, obviously they see that. They're, they're scared. Some of the, the children are, are frightened. And it, it, it is having an impact. In has, fact, it ever, has it ever made you think twice about you know, whether it was wise to run for, you know, run for I mean, elected office? You know, I grew up and went to a comprehensive school in Knowsley. I've been well-trained for this. My whole life <laughs> has been leading to this point. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, and I, and I, I, you know, I said I was a conservative in Highton. I mean, there aren't many of them, and you know, I, I was brave enough. Um, you know, and, and my best friend has never agreed with anything. She's Labour. I'm, I'm conservative. She's Leave. I'm Remain. We have not had a single argument about this because we've never agreed on anything. It's much easier if you've never agreed with your best friend, and then you've got nothing to fall out about. Um, but, um, but it is important, I think, that we do encourage more women to come forward. And um, you know, we've now got we've lost many on our side, and now we're desperately trying to make sure that we get more women come forward to stand in seats at this election um, and hopefully it won't put them off because it actually is the best job in the world. I love being an MP. It really is a great privilege. John Healy. It certainly is. It is a very special job and it is a great privilege to serve the people who elect you to do that job. It isn't just about Brexit though, as Julian Keegan has suggested, but it is certainly true and the question is right that this has got a great deal nastier in recent years. And it's also clear that um, it's female politicians that are often the highest profile target and subject to the greatest abuse. Now, as MPs, you have to accept, and it's right we accept, that a uh, challenge, criticism, comes with the job. But I think we have to think very carefully as a country when we've got to the stage where we see the level of abuse and threat and death threats, which incidentally aren't just to women MPs. I've also had one myself. But we, you, we, when you get to that stage where those that work with you are worried about going to work because of the level of abuse and the level of threat, then particularly we as politicians have to think very carefully about the example we set. And I do say that when you have the Prime Minister talking about surrender and traitor that escalates that escalates the tension it is not an argument it's rhetoric that is corrosive and corrupting and it has to stop
John Healy, you, you mentioned there in passing being subject to a death threat yourself. Yes, it's being investigated at the moment by the police in South Yorkshire. Ian Dale, th- this topic, well, overlaps, doesn't it, with the, with the book you're writing? Um, it, it does, and in a sense, I mean, we've had a very nice debate between us here. There's been no raised voices, there's been no sort of horrible things said, but there are too many programmes on the media which are just sort of bear-baiting. I've been on panels where you, you, you have a panel like this, you have an audience, and the audience are whipped up into a frenzy, and at the end of it you think, well, what was the point of that? It just generated more, light, more heat than light. The rhetoric does need to be dialed down. The internet has been a great democratising force in general, but it's also led to the elimination of deference, which also, in many ways, is a good thing. We don't want to sort of doff our caps to the aristocracy anymore, all that sort of thing. And it's, it, but it's given a voice to people that maybe we all thought didn't really exist. But you, if you want to form a sort of white supremacist Facebook group, you can do so, and you can then get like-minded people together. And pe- you realise that you're not on your own, that there are other people who think like you. And they whip each other up into a state of frenzy, and then we get the death threats. And I, I can tell you now that when we go home tonight after this programme, we will all get tweets saying how awful we are and disgusting and how, how can you possibly listen to that awfully and Dale, you'll probably agree with that. But, uh, <laughs> um, and no one should actually have to put up with that. And I agree with Nicola. The one simple way to do this on Twitter, and I recognise that the whole country isn't on Twitter, but one simple way to do it is to verify who the people are. You have to give your name and email address and that would put a, a stop to a lot of it. Now, it, John was absolutely right to say, and sometimes male politicians get criticised for this, but it isn't just female politicians that get this. YouGov did a survey recently that showed that men actually get a disproportionate amount of this. But you look at the MPs that are stepping down, virtually all of the female MPs cite this as a reason as to why they're stepping down. Nikki Morgan, who is as tough as old boots in many ways, I was absolutely shocked to hear, was it last night or the night before, mm. that she announced that she was going. And I thought, well, that sends a really bad signal to other women who want to get involved in politics. Um, but actually, let's not exaggerate it. We've got 32% of um, the people standing down are women 30, and, and the rest are men. That's exactly the same proportion as men and women in Parliament, actually. But you have got a slightly younger group of women who haven't been in Parliament for so long. And frankly, you know... If, if a female friend of mine came to me and said, look, I'm thinking of standing for Parliament, if she was a really good friend, would I advise her to do it? I'm not so sure I would at the moment, and I feel awful saying that. Let's take a, another question on a, uh, on a different topic. David Worrell. Hi, David. Oh, good evening. Um, my question is, does it matter that we are causing a mass extinction event? Ian Dale. What is that? Climate change. Climate change, are you talking about? No, I'm not talking just climate change. I'm meaning the way we're using absolutely every resource we can lay our hands on, expanding at an enormous rate of knots, and essentially killing off other species. Well, I mean... (laughs) 
anybody on this panel that answers in a different way, I think is going to be lynched at the end of this, because of course, of course it matters. Why would anyone think that it didn't matter if that is where we're heading? Now, I, I do take a slightly more positive view on these things than maybe some people. I don't think a mass extinction event is, is inevitable at all. I, I look at my own behaviour in terms of what I do in terms of what I buy. I deliberately don't buy things now that have a lot of plastic packaging on them if I can avoid it. I want the companies that produce all of these things to stop doing it. And the only way they're going to do that is by pressure from us as consumers. You look at the way that the aviation or the motor industries are developing and there have been massive strides forward in terms of um, emissions from aircraft. Uh, You look at the the, the rise of the electric vehicle. Governments have got a role here as well to provide incentives. I think there are huge amounts of things that are going on that we can actually see as positive. Technology is actually going to rescue the planet just as much as human behaviour will. Um, I mean, overpopulation is a subject which we never talk about, but actually that is, that is really part of, a big part of the problem here. But what do we do? Do we, say, do we go down the Chinese road, and, and they've actually stopped this now, of just restricting every family to one child? I mean, none of us, I don't think, would think that was a good idea. I haven't got a solution to that, but if we don't get to grips with overpopulation, that's more likely to lead to some sort of mass extinction event than any, any carbon emissions that we're putting into the air. Nicola Hollick. Well, it is a terrible, terrible problem. We have to do something about it. And it isn't just about us being extinguished. It is about the incredible planet that we have and and the diversity within it that we have to do something about. And coming back to the whole Donald Trump thing again, I think one of the problems is America's stance on this, which is so terrible, and the lobbying that goes on from the oil companies. I was actually rather pleased when the RSC decided to get rid of BP as its main sponsor, because that sends a message. And, you know, I know that BP is doing quite a lot in terms of green energy, but not enough. And we really all have to do far more, and governments have to do far more. Just leaving it to us as individuals, yes, as Ian says, we can decide we're not going to buy as many things with plastic packaging and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, that's not going to solve the issue quickly enough. And, you know, when you see these documentaries where there is vast amounts of plastic in the ocean, which is killing off large numbers of uh, amount of sea life and, you know, all the amazing documentaries that David Attenborough has done, it makes you realise how terrible the problem is. And I think the only way is to actually have um, guidelines and legislation to say that you can't package things in a certain way, that you can't have diesel cars. And Bristol, in, in the last few days, has said that they're not going to have diesel cars. And that's, uh, you know, th- I think we have to think very hard about public transport as well. That's big certainly, government intervention you're advocating then. Yeah, certainly in London, you know, we've got buses and diesel taxis and the atmosphere, that just the, the air that children are breathing is so terrible. And asthma continues to grow every year and becomes, you know, a, a more and more difficult problem. So I think, you know, we have to do things like, say, we're going to have trams and we're going to have electric cars and bicycles and we're not having anything else in the centre of London or Liverpool or any major city. So I think we have to be more radical in our thinking about this if we're actually going to do something about it and save the planet. Gillian Keegan, how, how big a chunk of the Conservative manifesto should be devoted to, to all things the, the environment? Because it's become, hasn't it, in the last few years, despite all the noise around the, the, the Brexit question, a really big dominating theme 
of our national conversation. Yeah, it absolutely has, and it absolutely needs to be. Um, one of the shames, really, the, the, the sad parts of having this election now is actually we just introduced the second region of the Environment Bill, which is a massive bill. I don't know how many people have read it. I have, and I spoke in the debate. And it's got a lot of uh, really, really um, ambitious targets, but also some very good practice in there. In, in like what? In terms of air quality, in terms of plastics, in terms of biodiversity, um, so that by, the, by 2025 the UK will have no coal-powered electricity generated at all, which is a very um, you know, global leading position, best in Europe. How do My you granddad was like a coal happens? miner. Um, we, we're already on path to that. We've already, we've already got... You, you basically replace it with renewables, and we've already got the largest offshore wind farm in the world... We've already got more than 50% of our uh, electricity... Well, we've got more renewables, and 50% of that's coming uh, from clean electricity. So there is already many things happening, but of course we need to go faster, which was the point of Extinction Rebellion and others. And not to 2025, because that will not take people with us. What we do, we need to take people along with us. I remember, and I was one of those people who bought a diesel car when we were last told that mm. that was the best thing to do. We're very diligent in this country. When we were told to buy diesel cars, the market share went from something like 14% to 65%. We all followed it, and then we all did what was exactly the wrong thing. So you do need to take people with you. But we have uh, plastics, obviously. There's a consumer tax now where, the, where, the, where, the, where this is all part of the Environment Bill, if we can get there. There's, most importantly, a regulator who will impose targets or make sure that we keep to the targets. And, of course, we have legislated to be net carbon neutral by 2050. Now, some want us to go quicker, and it could be when we get those plans in place... And, you know, there's going to be a big focus on this with us hosting um, COP26 uh, next year. What's that? But when we get... It's the, the Committee on Climate Change. It's, the, it's when all of the countries... Like the Paris Agreement, the, the new one of those. Which well, they're all the, flying the, with their private jets to yeah, the, the Glasgow yeah. Agreement. They probably will, um, because people do need to still fly to get over... To, to get, to get here. To jets, um, so but, you know, there, there's a lot of work being done. And I think it's... We should be proud, actually, in this country of the work that we are doing. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that we don't put our foot on the brakes foot on the pedal we will but we need to also make sure that we uh, do the right thing and we take people along with us the uh, labor perspective from john healy yes it matters um it matters more to our kids and our grandkids than us in the room here uh, and it matters to the poorest countries that are closest to sea level at the moment or closest to the edge of deserts at the moment, facing a more imminent extinction until uh, be- before the sort of 2050 dates that Gillian Keegan's talked about. I think it's great that we've seen such a big shift in sentiment on this, I think, in recent years. You won't often hear me say this, but uh, credit to the royals, particularly the young royals, for helping do that, and to David Attenborough in particular, outstanding um, programme on plastic in the oceans has really pushed us all to take action there. You said, uh, Chris, to Nicola, that means big government intervention. It means big government intervention because markets will never provide the huge transition and radical change that we need. And that's, 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 not, a, that's not being anti-market. That's just observing that they can't take into account these wider concerns and costs or the long-term change that's required. So you asked, will, will it be a big chunk of the Tory manifesto? I hope so. It will be a big chunk of the Labour manifesto. Okay. We need, uh, we've already said to the Treasury that we will be running every budget 
through a test of its impact on climate change and the environment, and we'll bring in a big green industrial revolution starting with new zero-carbon home standards. OK, we're going to try and squeeze in one last question from uh, Andrew Lovelady. Hi, Andrew. Uh, hi. Slightly lighter. How much do your political views agree with your parents' views, and how much are they a reaction, a reaction to them? Nicola Horlick. I'm afraid my answer is very boring because I come from a liberal family. As Chris said in the introduction, my father was a candidate for the Wirral in the 1974 general elections, both of them, and then in a by-election in 1976. And I was brought up with liberal values, and I haven't reacted against that in any way. But on the other hand, my grandparents were conservatives, and my grandfather always used to say about my father... He will grow out of it one day. <laughs> but he never did. How, how do letterboxes compare now to back then when you were uh, leafleting terrible. for your dad? Terrible, terrible. I was delivering leaflets yesterday and I nearly got my fingers snapped off about six times. There's all these terrible, you know, I don't know how the Royal Mail deals with it, getting things through letterboxes. <laughs> but it was much easier in the 1970s. Gillian Keegan. Uh, well, um, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I, am, I haven't had much conservative influence in my growing up. Um, you know, my granddad was a coal miner. He really didn't like Margaret Thatcher. I think you could safely say that. Neither did he like Arthur Scargill, by the way, as a Joe Gormley man. Uh, my grandmother delivered leaflets for Bessie Braddock. Um, so, you know, these were proper Labour activists. And, and everybody around me was Labour and Labour influencers. So, where, you know, where did it go wrong? Where did it go so wrong? <laughs> as they will say. Um, I hear someone saying yes. Um, well, basically, I started work at 16 in a car factory uh, in Kirby, um, just down the road, uh, as an apprentice. And, and I was heavily influenced by what was going on in the 80s with the union behaviour. And basically, um, they, were, they were driving business to the ground. And it was what I saw. And at the same time, I was at John Moore's studying mm -hmm. about globalisation as though you could stop it. So I just decided, and I would urge everyone to do this, make your own mind up. There's enough things that you can read. There's enough facts that you can get. Of mm -hmm. course, we're ex our experiences shape us. But make your own mind up, because it's the most important decision that you'll make. But you need to make one for yourself, not based on what your family say. Two minutes left. Uh, John Healy. <clears throat> Heavily influenced is the short answer. I, I think I get my sense of morality rather than my party politics from my mum and dad. Um, one was a teacher, one was in, in the prison service. Uh, and I also get that sense of public service. And in the end, politics is a service to the public. And if you don't see it in that way, then I don't think you should be in the business in the first place. On that we agree. And a final thought for me and Dale. Um, my mother was a liberal. She was a great fan of Jeremy Thorpe until the Troubles. Um, <laughs> but my grandmother was the biggest influence on me. I remember the day Margaret Thatcher was elected leader. She was ill in bed, and I rushed up to tell her that Margaret Thatcher had been elected leader of the Conservative Party, and she burst into tears, which I thought as a 12-year-old, that was a bit odd. And she later explained it's because she, she never thought a woman could ever lead a political party. But she also gave me two very wise pieces of advice. She said, always remember that Michael Foote's a communist and that Labour spend more money than they can afford, always. Yay! <laughs> Thank you uh, to you all. We are heading, as I say, to the Wheel of Falkirk uh, next week. Tickets available uh, via the Scottish Canals Trust 
uh, website. On our panel, the leader of the Labour Party in Scotland, Richard Leonard, the SNP MEP, Alan Smith, and the Brexit Party MEP, Alex Phillips, and A.N. Other, who is always my favourite panellist. From all of us here in Liverpool, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed Any Questions this week. To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for Any Questions.